I think if you're lucky enough to be queer, wow, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I understand that there are some poor, like, cis straight people, and I, I sympathize with their plight in life, right? Like, that must be so boring. Um, and it must be awful <laughs> to have to sort of, and, and, and you know, I, I, I wish them all the best, right? Like, Hey everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I'm Scott, and I'm here to say a few brief things about this week's special episode. First of all, this week's episode is an interview with Professor Lynn Marie Tonstad, who is a professor of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School. She recently wrote a book called Queer Theology, which has basically changed my life. I highly recommend it. It's dense and academic, but also profoundly practical. So highly recommend that. Uh, Also, as an update in terms of my life, and I know we've hinted about this on the podcast, but I'm currently working for an organization called Beloved Arise as the youth pastor. And if if you've listened to the podcast over the years, we've hinted at the fact that I'm a youth pastor. But No Small Thing has always been a fairly um, alternative, different uh, space for me personally and for Mace to not necessarily talk specifically about Christianity or faith or philosophy or theology or religion or anything like that. As you know, this is the place where we get curious and we talk about things that just happen to interest us outside of the realm of theology, even though sometimes we talk about the Trinity and age and wisdom and other things that seem Christian slash theology adjacent. Um, But recently, I started working for this organization that exists to support queer youth of faith, and I could not be more proud. And um, Mace and I, together with a lot of friends of ours, have created a new youth group that we call Rebel. And we're really proud of this space. And again, uh, it exists to support queer youth of faith. We are here in Seattle, and initially this youth group was set up to be a Seattle youth group. But when COVID hit, uh, we went virtual, and we thought temporarily we'd invite why not invite other people to join us from around wherever? And uh, eventually, students, teens, young adults from all over the world started joining this youth group that we've been running, which has been fantastic. I mean, if you know anything about Mace and me through the spirit of this podcast, you know that we are wanting people to be curious, and this applies to our youth programs too. Uh, Having said that, Um, when it comes to justice issues, and especially when it comes to supporting queer youth of faith, uh, we, we believe passionately about that. We're, we're not arguing or discussing that topic. And we also want to, um, invite people to help us understand, um, uh, affirming theology from a Christian perspective. So Lynn Marie Tonstad, based on my knowledge is, the person that has done the most thorough job of this through her uh, book, um, Queer Theology. So I'm so excited for you to listen to this interview. Uh, if you, if this is new information to you and you want to follow us on Beloved Arise, you can look us up on Instagram. You can look us up on the internet. <laughs> uh, we have a website called uh, BelovedArise.org. Uh, we're, we're a brand new organization. We exist to support queer youth of faith. And um, even though this episode is pretty heady, and we um, 
you know, invited Lynn to talk to us uh, in, in the way that she talks in, in more of a rich, um, heavy theological sense. Uh, we, we also hope that this episode is helpful for anybody that's wrestling with affirming theology, especially for teens. Uh, if you are a teen, especially if you're a teen that knows me and if you've been attending our youth group, you know that uh, we care about you, I care about you, that I believe the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And this episode primarily is for you. I would love for this episode to be a resource to parents, to pastors, to youth pastors, to anybody that is uh, questioning or thinking about becoming affirming or developing an affirming stance when it comes to uh, queer folks and queer youth in particular. Um, However, having said that, um, the work that we're doing right now is prioritizing queer youth of faith, queer youth in general. So uh, I invite you to buy Lynn Marie Tonstad's book called Queer Theology. I hope this episode is extremely helpful for you. And um, this is a conversation that we're opening up to our followers and listeners. Uh, this is a this is an important topic to us. I think the question of queerness is exactly in the spirit of no small thing. Uh, we we want to think outside of the prescribed categories that our society gives us, and um, we want to do that in a curious and playful way, in a way that brings about um, actual fresh insights in our own minds, but also it, as we dialogue and converse with other people. So. Anyways, <laughs> this is a long, meandering uh, introduction to an episode that I really hope you love. But as you know, with No Small Thing, all of our conversations are long and meandering. Um, we try not to necessarily rush ourselves to get to a particular point, but we try to give ourselves space to to meander and work things out. And I think that's what this episode is about with Lynn as well. So uh, having said that, I'll stop rambling now. I really hope you enjoy this episode Follow us on Instagram. Send us any DMs. You can email us. We really want this to be an open-ended conversation. If you're listening for the first time because you found us through Beloved Arise, welcome. And just know that uh, we are dedicated to having more conversations like this with people like Professor Lynn Marie Tonstad. And and also take heart. There are amazing folks like Lynn Marie Tonstad out there who are doing the really good, rigorous, thorough work of engaging with this on a, a through through the lens of Christianity. If you're not a Christian, you're, you're, you're probably thinking, well, why do I even need to bother? But um, for Christians, it is a particularly homophobic um, institution, Christianity. And so uh, Lynn's work is very important. Anyways, thanks for listening, everybody. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and we will be back next week with an episode on Enneagram and Sports. And enjoy this episode with Professor Lynn Marie Tonstad, a professor of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School and author of Queer Theology. All right, everybody, we are in the house with Lynn Marie Tonstad. Actually, she is calling us via Zoom. She's in her home. We're in the computer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we are joined with Lynn, and we wanted to just begin by hearing from you, hearing a bit about your journey, um, kind of how you got into the study of queer theology and queer theory and whatnot. 
No, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm excited for so the conversation. Excited. <laughs> <laughs> Very excited. We're like, woo, woo, like this is going to be amazing, sure. people. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> no, it's true, though. I mean, quick side note. Like, we had Kevin Garcia speak at the youth group this last week, and they, I, I, I was trying to pump you up. I was like, oh, this book's amazing, and kids don't know this book. <laughs> and, and, and Kevin was like, oh, they're like our Lynn is like a rock star <laughs> in the theological world. You should be so excited. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's far too generous, yeah. but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I'm excited for the, for the conversation. Yeah. So queer theology, right? Like it's, it's in some ways, my story is, is in some ways very standard. And then I think in some ways like has, has a few variations uh, on it. I was brought up uh, seventh day Adventist, which is uh, kind of a mm-hmm. weird often thought of as a little bit sort of fundamentalist, like new religious movement that started in uh, primarily actually upstate New York back in the mid uh, 19th century. And um, I come from a very international family. My mother's Iraqi, my father's Norwegian. I was uh, what they uh, in racist uh, universes call an anchor baby in the sense that I was born when my parents were not um, uh, uh, full immigrants to the United States, but I grew up in Norway and, uh, being Adventist there was a very subcultural sort of thing. Um, even though the differences between Adventists and other Christians in many ways, aren't that dramatic in Norway, which of course is a heavily secularized, heavily white country. Uh, there was a lot of unusualness, uh, to that. And so I, I grew up in a very sort of subcultural world in, in, in certain ways. I went to only Seventh-day Adventist schools. We, mm. The, the people I knew were all Adventist. And um, one of the things that Adventism really prioritized was like, you have to find out the truth for yourself. And I was a an avid reader and I was like, okay, well, if that's my duty, like, I guess that's what I should be getting on, right? Like, so this is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to read the Bible and, and try and figure out what it means. And I had a very, um, I had a very sort of standard, you know, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin kind of approach. And then when I was probably about 14, 15 years old, for some reason, my high school showed this movie Priest, which is, uh, it's a, it's gotta be a nineties movie. Cause that's when this was about a Roman Catholic priest sort of wrestling with his sexuality basically. And I was completely floored. Hmm. Right. I, I just, I, I, it had never occurred to me given the way I was raised that like Christians, and queers could be the same people. Mm-hmm. Like it was just definitionally not the case that that, and and you know the the movie is very it's very aesthetically appealing, right? He's a very handsome priest, you know, <laughs> and he's very tormented, right? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the oldest romantic tropes, right? And I was a slightly <laughs> overdramatic teenager, so I'm like, oh, you know, this is just, and and I was like, oh, so I guess it's not wrong to be gay, and 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 from that moment on, my mind never wavered on mm. that question. I didn't myself uh, think of myself or identify as queer at all at that point. Uh, but it was just so obvious to me that yeah. this wasn't an issue. And I think that that insight and the way that it came of a, a kind of certainty that simply couldn't be shaken afterwards, because there was no kind of evidence that you could have presented to me that would have convinced me otherwise. It was a basic conviction mm. after that point. Um, just it, from it this movie? In, all just that? from this movie? 
Yeah, I know, right? Like, it's weird how those sort of turning points, but I also, I hadn't been allowed to watch movies and TV growing up, so that's probably one of the reasons <laughs> that it had a big impact. Yeah. Um, you know, you, these things don't always work out as as as, uh, as, as your parents and, and, and uh, surrounding community plan, right? Yeah. Like, they're remember? like, oh, this is such a good idea. We should restrict them in all kinds of ways. And you're like, well, yeah. Um, and then but anyway. Uh, do we remember who the lead, <laughs> exactly. who's the lead actor from... That, that movie. I remember? can't remember. Uh, you know, I've thought about going back and watching it, yeah. but I'm sure it wouldn't match my memory right, in all right, kinds right. of ways. You don't want either, to, right? <laughs> like, you don't want it, to be ruined. I, I, and so I, I've never. I keep thinking about it every yeah. every year. Or so I revisit. Like, oh, maybe I, maybe I should sometime like actually watch that again. But <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then when uh, when I got uh, when I went when I got to college, I went uh, to college to Seventh Day Adventist School, of course, in Southern California. And, um, I, I was originally pre-med, uh, you know, my, my immigrant mother, right? Like everybody in my family is supposed to be a doctor kind of story. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I guess that's just what you do. And mm -hmm. I, uh, went along and took a philosophy class in my first, uh, quarter. And that was the end of that, um, <laughs> that, that changed my trajectory very definitively. And it was around the same time that I came out and, it was challenging, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in in undergrad, I was at one point the only uh, the only woman who was out mm -hmm. on this campus of of some thousands of people, and I I had some support from people in the administration. I had some very kind, life saving people in my life, but at the time, I identified as bisexual, and my parents, bless them, I mean. They weren't they weren't ready, right? Like they didn't they didn't know as as is so often the case. And you know, my father was like, Oh, you know, if if I know that you can date men or women and you're choosing to date women, like that just mm -hmm. makes me wish I was dead. And oh. my Ooh. mother, of course, had a little bit the thing where like, Oh, if you could only find a nice boy, you know, like <laughs> it's it's probably just that you haven't found, you know, and, and <laughs> it was it was challenging and, and it was where I learned the carrot and stick approach, right? Mm. Which you can do if you know that your parents love you. Mm. Like if you, if you know that fundamentally, you can try the carrot and stick approach, which is that you don't negotiate around sexuality questions. You just don't negotiate. There's no discussion back and forth. There's nothing that they get to say. They can have their own opinions in their own heads. That's up to them. They're their own people. And, you know, I don't want to be controlled and I don't want to control others' behavior. But I, I, my first two, the first two people I dated were both women and yeah, they were very, very upset about it. Mm. And I, I turned on the carrot and stick approach. It was basically, you have contact if you behave. Yeah. I knew they loved me and it was not a, it was not an easy process for them. Um, and we actually had to go through the process again, many years later uh, for various reasons, but they came through. Thanks be uh, in both in both cases eventually yeah. and I've been I've been very glad for that of course but it it helped that even though my entire church all the people around me most of my surrounding community was very certain that you know this is not cool in uh, <laughs> God's eyes I knew they were wrong yeah I know that's wrong I know that at a level that there, there is nothing to be discussed here for mm -hmm. me. I, I understand why others want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I know that for my father, who also works as a pastor and New Testament scholar, um, serving parishioners who've struggled with their sexuality has been a meaningful part of his uh, life as a, as a minister. Mm -hmm. 
I, I have many students who have gone through a lot of struggles in this area, but for me, there was a very definitive, this is not the question. Yeah. And if you think it's a question, you're getting something fundamentally wrong hmm. about Christianity, about the Bible, about God. Gosh, I love that. And that conviction, that's, it's, it's, there's nothing more basic than in, in, in that sense, right? That like, and so it guided, it ended up guiding my trajectory um, in some ways, personally. I, I went to divinity school after college uh, thinking I was going to do like intellectual history or something like that. That was like, this is a good plan, right? I do this in my intro class often, first <laughs> semester divinity students, right? Like me two decades ago. Um, so I, I, I thought this was a great plan, right? Like I'll take two years, figure out what I believe, and then I'll move on to other things, right? And here I am 20 years later, right? Like, <laughs> professor. <laughs> so it turned out I didn't figure out what I believed in two years. Strangely enough, that, that just wasn't a process that one apparently can sort of switch on and then switch off when one's done with it. Instead, I, I, I sort of fell in love with, with theology and, um, and went that way. I went to grad school uh, or did my doctorate subsequently in, in modern Christian theology, especially um, modern uh, Anglo-American and German. And uh, I I had done a lot of work on queer stuff at that point, but it wasn't really in my writing until after grad school. Um, becoming trained as a systematic theologian in a in a fairly rigorous but very traditional program yeah. uh, meant that I'd yeah I'd, I'd done a lot of work on dead white Germans. They weren't all dead at the time. Now they are, <laughs> um, but I'd done a lot of work on 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 dead white Germans. Bless their hearts and. Yeah. Uh, I sort of came out of grad school and I was like, well, this has been a scary experience. Yeah. Um, I had, I had come in with, with clear political and, and ethical and uh, whatever you want to call sort of liberative commitments. Mm -hmm. And while I hadn't found exactly hostility toward that in grad school, it also wasn't, it didn't seem to have the sort of, um, systematic validity for many of my colleagues that it did for me. That is, these convictions were sort of, they were maybe things that you might have on top of other convictions, mm. but not necessarily convictions that would ground the entire structure of your thinking in a certain way. So when I finished grad school, I took my, my uh, dissertation. I cannibalized a little bit of it for articles. I sort of extracted the bits of it that weren't terrible and published them. And then I started again. And I wrote a different book than I had written a dissertation. So my first book was about God, uh, primarily about how people think about God as Trinity, and mm. especially this sort of very contested language of like God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mm. and the way that people try to deal with the gendered nature of that language, yeah. not only around whether God the Father is patriarchal, but also like little strategies that people are often very fond of, like let's make the Holy Spirit feminine. feminine. Like yep. that's yeah. probably a good idea. That'll yeah. fix it, right? You got the Father. <laughs> the sun and a girl. their feminine bird. <laughs> that <laughs> seems like it's going to de-patriarchal fatherize God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, so I tried to write a book both like in systematics language and in sort of queer theory, queer theology language that would show why these strategies don't work. Uh, it's a very technical book, obviously. Um, but I, I did something that's fairly unusual in systematics, which was that I gave a rigorous 
sort of systematics. So systematics, right, is this branch of theology that thinks it's about everything. That's the systematics side of it, right? It's like, these are the central implications of central principles of belief for, you know, Christian faith and life, et cetera, et cetera. And systematicians tend to be, um, they tend to, they tend to feel confident pronouncing. They, they tend to think that they, they, they know how to play this game. And so I tried to play both that game and a very different one uh, mm. in this book, and it was it was hard to write and it was scary to write, but um, I it it felt right. Mm. So that then led me in this now interminable story. That then led me into um, publishing more and more actively in queer theology, and I was also teaching a seminar in queer theology and the way I was teaching it was really not matching what students were expecting from it. Mm. And students wanted, were coming in sort of assuming that they know that like queer theology and Christianity should be about God loves everybody. It mm. should be about everybody's created in God's image. It should be about how the way you're made naturally is God's will for your life and so on and so forth. And what we need is to sort of show that the homophobic aspects of the Bible aren't really homophobic, that the transphobic aspects of Christianity don't necessarily have to be that way and so on and so forth. And I, I get where that comes from, obviously. Like, I get where that desire comes from, uh, given my background. How could I not? I also think it's a really misguided desire. Mm. I think it plays the game on the wrong side of the pitch, as it were. Mm. Mm. Um, it accepts the rules that have been set and then oh. tries to resist inside those rules. But it's those rules that are the mistake to begin with. In other words, sexuality is not a question at the heart of Christianity. Not like that, especially not sexuality and gender identity and the way that they're currently shaped in the modern world. That doesn't mean they're unimportant to Christianity. It doesn't mean that they're unimportant to who we are as people, to how we negotiate our relationships and so on. It does mean that theologically, um, there's something else that's at the heart of the gospel. And the decisions that many Christian churches have made in recent years to make this like, you know, you can negotiate on capitalism, you can negotiate on the death penalty, you can negotiate on abortion, you can't negotiate on um, gay people and queer people and trans people. It's, it's, it's not good. So then I wrote this queer theology book, which is the one that I think you've been uh, yeah, looking yeah. at, in, in order partly to try to explain to my students and partly to try to explain to others why if queer theology is something we should be doing, it needs to be done really differently than that. Mm. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of medium long version of the, the road to That's here. the perfect version. <laughs> no, that was, <laughs> no, you just told the perfect version. Um, what what uh, grad school did you go to? I went to Yale. Okay. So you've been at Yale for so a long time. I was gone for three years after I finished grad school. I was teaching elsewhere for, for a few years and then came back. Yeah. But yeah, I have been there for a long time now. You know, one of these things that I'm sure you've encountered over and over again, but it was it was in the days where I wasn't affirming. And first of all, I've all it's, it's a weird bind we're put in as Christians growing up in the church of, I grew up uh, evangelical Presbyterian, which is a bit more of a conservative evangelical Christian. Uh, but um, you don't, it doesn't feel good to be non-affirming. Like you want to be affirming. And then everybody around you is telling you that it's wrong. And you're like, okay, well, I, I guess I'll, but when I started, I guess thinking for myself in quotes, um, <laughs> Are we ever thinking for ourselves? But uh, I, I remember C.S. Lewis, who's always quoted in evangelical circles, starts his mere Christianity book with basically appealing to common sense. He's like, 
you know, when you hear this, you, you feel in your gut, yes or no. And that, that implies that you're in touch with the divine of sorts. Hmm. And he uses that as his starting point for apologetics. But it's just interesting when you start to say something like, oh, yeah, just like how I feel inclined to affirm queer people. And now, and now all of a sudden people want you to shut down your common sense and shut down what feels right and good in your spirit and follow something entirely different. It's that like feels against your spirit. Yeah. Yeah. I find it so cool and compelling that the, the Holy spirit, uh, this, uh, a woman dove, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. for definitely, yeah. uh, spoke to you through that movie, you know, just made it so clear. <laughs> Seriously. It's amazing. Well, and you know, the, the thing you're saying there is it's it's one of the ways, you know, many strengths have their shadow sides. Mm-hmm. And one of the strengths of Christianity, if it's taken up in a serious way, is that it is practiced for living differently. Mm-hmm. It's practiced mm-hmm. for asking questions about whether the world could and should be different, whether we could and should be different from what we are and what it takes to get there. And those are incredibly important questions. This was true before we were looking around at a world that is being destroyed by climate change at the same time as a once in a century pandemic has shut down much of the world and taken so much from young people in ways that are not yet being acknowledged seriously. You know, when I look around and see the sacrifices that young people are mostly voluntarily making to save other people's lives, I am just in awe of what they are doing. Uh, They are losing more than any of us. And I, I cannot believe the sort of courage and, and, and strength that they're showing in this time. Mm. And I'm also very angry that they're being asked to show it. And mm. then they're not being given backup from the world that's supposed to be for them in certain ways. It's, it's infuriating. Mm. So Christianity, right? Like at its best, it's about like, how could we make this different, right? Like how could we learn to be different? We recognize, you know, these are very sort of traditional uh, New Testament themes. The form of this world is passing away. I have overcome the world. Like we're recognizing that there's something about the order of the world that isn't how it should be. In fact, there's a lot that isn't how it should be. And that there are resistances in us that aren't entirely under our own control. There are resistances in how we're shaped and how we learn to love and what we learn to desire and in how we move through the world. And so Christianity has this capacity to sort of make you go, maybe it doesn't need to be like this. Maybe we could really, you know, maybe there are other uh, alternatives. Yeah. And then it runs up against something like what you were just saying, that sort of, um, I would like to be affirming, but here it so clearly seems to be. And so here's where the strength, right? Like denaturalizing the world, we might say, Mm -hmm. like learning that the world doesn't have to be the way it is. Something else could be the case. Maybe the ways you've learned to think and react aren't always the best for you or for the world around you or for your relationships or, or, or in any kind of way. You sort of take that very real strength of Christianity and you just turn it right inside out. And now it becomes, oh, your sense that you want to be affirming, that's the world. Like that's the world that you should be fighting. That's the world that you should be overcoming. And you take this wonderful thing, which is like we could maybe not take for granted so many things that we take for granted. This is, of course, especially intense in, you know, so-called advanced capitalist economies that are so fundamentally structured on exploitation and so on. But, you know, we really have to fight, right? Like I'm walking through the pandemic. I was a pretender during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know whether I was getting it. Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing, mm-hmm. right, like I lose my job, I lose my health insurance. Yeah. And, and you're sort of recognizing like what that means in this time where the survival of, 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 of us, whatever that turns out to mean, 
it usually doesn't end up meeting us. But the survival of us requires that all of us have certain kinds of caretaking available to us. And you're tying that to whether I've written an important enough book on theology to deserve to keep my job. Like, Ooh. is there something anti-Christian in that very structure? I, I oh, think there would have to be. Yeah. If there's any truth in Christianity, you see that like that's something has gone wrong along the way here. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> and the Christian institutions are playing the game just as much as anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I because because being a Christian institution has become a real marketing strategy for oh. certain colleges and universities yeah. uh, in a time where competition is fierce and the sense of scarcity is maybe even stronger than, yeah. Ooh, dang it! <laughs> you briefly mentioned this word, and I just wonder if you could touch more on it of this idea of denaturalization because I think that that's such a cool concept that. For people who are just hearing it, it might be nice to hear a bit of a description of what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, denaturalizing, it's it's sort of one of those uh, very fundamental practices in queer theory and queer theology. And what it says is, in short, like the world has been constructed the way that it is. It isn't the way that it is because things just have to be that way. It's been constructed a certain way, not necessarily intentionally, right? This isn't about like some cabal of like evil people behind the scenes, although maybe sometimes. But <laughs> in general, it's not necessarily that there's this like group of evil be- people behind the scenes who are screwing things up. It's that there are all kinds of incentives, all kinds of uh, reasons that or sort of pressures toward arranging things in a certain way. And then especially as we are being raised inside a certain culture or inside a certain context, the way things are seems to be the way that they just are, right? Like it's natural that people should need to work in order to have health insurance. It seems like an obvious thing. Why should you be given expensive hospital services if you're not contributing socially in terms of your work and your taxes, right? None of this is natural, right? Like all of this is decisions that we are sort of collectively and also not at all being allowed to make, right? Mm. Because there are all kinds of things that get in the way of, of, of changing things. But so denaturalization is about recognizing that certain things that seem natural and inevitable, like heterosexuality or uh, cisgender identity or any number of like the family form yeah. or capitalism or colonialism or imperialism or, you know, like all these things that are part of our everyday lives that are part of what shapes the context that we all exist inside. They don't have to be that way. It's not necessarily this is how things naturally are. It's that they have become this way. And if they have become this way, maybe they can be changed. Mm. Now, Many people who do stuff in, in, in queer sort of areas, I think, are very optimistic about denaturalizing as mm. a strategy. Mm. Um, there's often a sort of tendency to think like, hey, if I show that this is constructed, that means it can be changed. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like, it would be nice if, if we worked that way. But the fact that something is constructed doesn't mean that I can then sort of look at it and be like, oh, this is constructed. It no longer has any power over me. I'm just going to go off and do something else. Like that requires a kind of control over yourself and your choices and your desires and your ways of thinking. But the whole point of denaturalizing is that you recognize that you don't have that kind of control. Like you have already been shaped from the inside. I have already been shaped from the inside before, in a way, I can start to recognize. And recognition also isn't enough. Mm. 
mm-hmm. um, there's a real distance between recognition and enactment uh, mm-hmm. for many reasons, including that, again, the fact that we have made this world in some sense doesn't mean that we have actually made it, right? Yeah. Like we're inside it in some ways against our will or before we even have a will. Mm-hmm. And yet we are participating in it, right? Like I'm against imperialism. I'm against militarism. You know, I don't think that the United States army should go out and invade foreign countries and bomb them. You know, I have family members who have suffered from 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 the consequences of that mm-hmm. kind of uh, behavior in the U.S.'s part, but I pay my taxes, right? I pay my taxes because I don't want to go to jail. And I don't love that I do that. I don't love that my teaching of theology directly funds the U.S. military to do right. the things that are against my fundamental beliefs. And yet you but have it, to. I, well, I could go to jail, right? I could choose to go to jail. I really don't want to. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I'm just going to name that, right? I'm not yeah. happy with this. I do see it as an ethical or sort of... Uh, I'm not, I'm a, we can talk more about this. I'm very anti-moralization. That's a, that's a much longer conversation. But I... <laughs> I, I have a conviction here that yeah. I don't live up to, right? Mm-hmm. I have a conviction, which is that I should not be giving money to the U.S. military. And I don't live up to that conviction. That tells me that maybe denaturalizing is only a very small step mm. towards transformation. Mm. Because I can recognize that what I'm doing here is wrong in some meaningful sense. And yet I'm still not changing my behavior because yeah. I have other concerns and incentives and habits um, that don't shift so easily like not wanting to go to jail yeah I mean that makes me think literally before we got on this call I was talking about I bought like new shoes and pants for school starting for me and it's like I don't know how to get new items without participating in capitalism like right if I want to be able to get a new piece of clothing there's very small creative solutions where I could maybe find secondhand clothing but it would cost a lot and it would require a complete changing of the way I then consume things like to not participate in capitalism would require that to be like such a full-time commitment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, because like one of the things that I like about Christianity is it tells us that we're sort of limited creatures who screw up a lot. I, that matches my experience of myself. (laughs) So I'm like, Oh, thank you for helping me understand that. And if, if, if I sort of imagine that I can, ch- that I can choose my way out of some of this, right, that I can sort of purify myself in mm-hmm. some way, I'm necessarily, because of those limitations, paying attention to some things mm-hmm. like where my clothes come from, but I'm not paying attention to where my um, cooking gas comes from or something like that. Or maybe yeah. I can pay attention to that too, but I still can't necessarily investigate like the um, supply chain for every single object right. that I come into right. contact with or for the, you know, I was just telling you before we started this headset that I'm using for this call was bought for me for teaching, right? Like I don't necessarily have the capacity to check whether they used Amazon to purchase it, even right. though I personally want to boycott Amazon in every area of my life <laughs> and, and so on and so forth. And uh, it also is that, being too focused on whether I'm a good person, right? Like this is for me, at least one of the sort of freeing things about that hated Christian doctrine of original sin, Mm -hmm. right? This idea (laughs) that we're sort of sinners before we even uh, do anything, you know, in a few weeks, I'll be lecturing to my intro students on, you know, there's this wonderful passage in Augustine, like early in the confessions, uh, you know, maybe the greatest Christian theologian of all time. I have a very negative relationship with him, but (laughs) He has this wonderful like sort of image of like 
crying little babies, like screaming in their cribs. And he's like, so small a child, so great a sinner. And what he means is that the baby is screaming because it's not being given what it wants immediately by its caretakers. And you're like, the little baby can't help that. Like, why are you, you know, but he, he, there, there is, there, there is, there is maybe something there that has to do with like, I act before and outside my own control all the time. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, Christianity can help me recognize an inevitability there. And then maybe also that can be a sort of step towards thinking about how things can be different and needing something other than my own capacities to change, to be a part of that story. We talk about uh, defense mechanisms on the podcast a lot. And it's strange that, Christians have been given this tool, which would be sin and confession and all these things to acknowledge wrongdoing and sin and be able to like repent and turn in the other direction. But I think especially we're seeing amongst a lot of Christians these days that they have a hard time looking at themselves. Um, I mean, I guess we have to take it on a case by case basis, but I guess as a, a, maybe you could say American evangelicalism as an institution has a hard time looking at itself. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's also right. Like, so a certain kind of Protestant has this idea of something called total depravity, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that you you kind of like everything you do if it isn't sort of ruled by God in some way is sin, and if it is ruled by God, is not inside your own control. That's it. That's up to God, right? And total depravity sounds horrible, right? It sounds awful. But one of the things that it can help us to see is that our best impulses can be our most dangerous impulses. Mm, mm. And that's where the the sort of confession and repentance model can even turn against us in certain ways. Because, and I have two examples of this. Uh, one is, uh, they're, they're both related to current discussions of race in America. So one is around the way that I can confess my racism as a way of exercising power over you, because Mm. unlike you, I'm willing to admit that I'm a racist. So I still get to be the good person in this exchange because I am acknowledging my own racism. And Christians are really good at using that strategy. Mm. It's a very, very, very effective strategy. Mm. You can see it rhetorically in a lot of church contexts where like some minister confesses that he has sinned against his wife and family or whatever the case may be. And in so doing, he shows himself to be an even better Christian because he's he's willing to admit that he has failed. That's like so Christian, right? Like you're the goodest Christian of us all. (laughs) And you know, there's even this hint, right? In Jesus, where Jesus is like, if you want to sit at the head of the table, you should sit at the very bottom and hope that the host is going to come over to you and be like, hey, you should sit at the top with me. Yeah. And you're like, oh, Jesus, like, <laughs> I didn't know you played that hard. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but then another example, right? Like uh, a very, I think, I, I think in many ways, a wonderful Christian minister, like there was a, there was a picture that went around of them uh, standing at a Black Lives Matter protest holding a sign that said, um, basically, systemic racism proves total depravity. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not true at all, right? Mm-hmm. That's not at all what total depravity is about. Total depravity is about the idea that you, in a certain sense, like, think that you can recognize your own badness and take control over it by reforming yourself in a certain way. 
So in a way to think that you can manage to become anti-racist in some sort of Mm. conversion of the heart kind of sense, that's the total depravity, Mm. right? The total depravity is much more about your best impulses than your worst impulses in this way of thinking. And, and, and so I, for me, that's still a helpful idea. I don't know if I'd necessarily, you know, sort of sign a confession of faith that required me to, mm-hmm. to uphold this in every aspect of my life, but there's an insight there that I think is really valuable. And it's about how dangerous it is to want to be good. Mm. Oh, that sounds like you should be your sermon for chapel tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was going to make it about uh, COVID shaming, actually. Oh, I, no, I, I, no. I, the plan is to use Romans 14 to talk about COVID shaming, but we'll That's see. That's good. That's good. Okay. Okay. So, so to set up this conversation about apologetics, I guess for listeners, maybe I would just say, it seems that um, there's there's these clobber passages that people know about in the Bible that are meant to shut down essentially the conversation around affirming theology. And uh, I, I, I take apologetics to mean sort of getting into the weeds of certain scriptural passages and refuting them or proving them or just, and in your book, I think that's one of the novel things you choose to do is you, you do go into the weeds, you go all in and you do the most robust engagement with all those classic verses that I've seen. And then essentially you end the chapter by saying, but that's not even really what this book is about. <laughs> uh, there's a better, more productive way to have this conversation. And that's where you take the next chapter. So could you explain a little bit about why you choose to opt out of that sort of apologetics conversation? Well, partly you start with the deck stacked against you when mm-hmm. you enter into that conversation, right? The sort of default position is that it's bad to be gay or queer or trans, that it's against God's will in some way, or that the Bible clearly condemns it. And then you try to show why that isn't the case. There are so many reasons, in my view, why this is a bad strategy. Now, I will acknowledge, right, like apologetics is one of the oldest Christian genres of writing, right? Like it goes way, 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 way back in Christianity, because Christianity arose in a context where some of the things that Christians believed, in particular, of course, this idea that God, God, the, the goodest, the gooder, the, the real good, like the most awesome, you know, the, all the, all those sort of omni and mega words um, had like entered into the literal physical shit of human existence. Yeah. Like that is not, that doesn't seem like a very plausible claim to make in the context in which Christianity arises in the context in which Christianity arises, you know, this is, this is a little bit philosophically questionable. You're like, you're not going to win in the debating school by coming in with this, like, Hey, God manger, like screaming baby. Like this is just not exactly how we think about God. Right. So apologetics comes out of in Christianity comes out of trying to say, Mm. Hey, you think this is super inappropriate. It's actually the most amazing and like revelatory and coolest thing ever. And let me show you why. Mm. Right. Mm. So it's a very old Christian way of writing and thinking. Um, And a lot of like really interesting and and, and cool stuff comes out of it sometimes. Um, then you get to the way that apologetics tends to function, especially in Western Christianity these days, which really, really, really focuses on the sexuality question. I mean, it's it's always primarily the sexuality question. The gender question sort of goes in underneath Perhaps there, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's getting a lot more attention these days. But, you know, the Bible just doesn't say that much that seems to directly impact questions of gender identification and 
it's hard to, you know, you can get the Unix passage here and you can get a sort of Adam pre-differentiation passage there, but it, it just doesn't seem to have the same kind of clarity that these clobber mm. passages are mm. taken to have uh, for many people. I do wonder whether this is shifting, but anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, and so you, you sort of, you take these clobber passages and you try to show like, despite what seems to be stated on the page, this doesn't mean what it says it means. And there are good arguments for some of these viewpoints. The arguments around translation probably aren't very good, but arguments around like, like to, to say that some of these words are just mistranslated in some yeah. way, et cetera, like that's probably not a very convincing argument in some ways. We do know that, of course, like modern ideas of gender and sexuality and the significance in particular of sexuality to the human person, they don't exist in the ancient world. They don't mm. exist in the world out of which the Bible arises. Like the predominant understanding of what we would now think of as male-male same-sex relations in the in the world of the Bible is like really sort of um, men who have just entered the first flower of their manhood, mm. like um, occasionally, like taking a younger boy lover, preferably like before the first flower of his beard is on his face. So like age 16 to 18, and it's very much a power thing, right? Yeah. It's about like your own process of becoming a man and to participate in a relationship like that after that period of 16 to 18 would probably for, for most people have been considered demeaning if it was even accepted at all. Hmm. You can say, and many arguments do say this, well, this doesn't have anything to do with how we understand homosexuality. We understand homosexuality to be about two mature, loving adult human beings having a mutually supportive, loving relationship, <laughs> and God is love, and therefore, this is all great. Well, sure. I mean, I'm not going to say that any of that is necessarily untrue either, but it doesn't have a lot of theological significance if you pay attention to what the Bible cares about. Mm. Mm. Like the Bible doesn't spend nearly as much time worrying about sexuality as we seem to think it should. Mm. In fact, the Bible spends a lot more time worrying about food practices, the morality of food practices, mm. like a lot more time. And, you know, Ken Stone has written a lot of, of good stuff on this, spends a lot more time worrying about the morality of food practices than it oh. does about sex. Mm. We could say that should mean we should worry more about food. That's probably true, right? In a world where our food production is a major source of climate change, yes, we should be worrying a lot more about our food practices. That seems right. But we can also recognize that it may not be that food or sex or whatever other version of a kind of moral system you want to come up with is at the heart of Christianity. You might also ask whether you can understand the heart of Christianity as somewhere else, as, as, as being something that is perhaps expressed sometimes through and in relation to these uh, moral or maybe even ethical questions in some ways. Um, and, and, and I think if you do ask yourself that question and you sort of look at what you think the heart of Christianity is, what you think you're committing to if you decide to make this particular way of life part of your life, uh, to me, it seems incredibly hard to read the Bible and come out at the end being like, this is a Christian question in any yeah. significant way. I'm not saying it can't be done. As I say in that chapter that you were just describing, um, I do think there are apologetic arguments that if you put them together in a very particular way, 
uh, are probably quite good arguments mm -hmm. and, and have some theological significance. And it has to do with food and it has to do with judgment and it has to do with like what it means to sort of acknowledge that the form of this world is passing away. And maybe that includes our current organization of gender and sexuality as part of what stands under divine judgment, mm -hmm. meaning not homosexuality necessarily, but the way we organize gender and sexuality might not be completely the best way that that could ever conceivably be done. And maybe in fact, and this is an argument that many scholars have made, maybe making gender and sexuality central in the way that we often do in the modern world is also part of a kind of putting our energies into a place that makes us more, um, that gives us certain kinds of pleasures and satisfactions that help to make up for the misery of the world capitalism is creating for us. Right. Wow. <laughs> that was a big one to end on right there. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and so I guess to play devil's advocate, because I love the way you do that. I love the way you approach the topic and sort of, I mean, again, like even though you do sort of, the best takedown of each of those clobber passages in your apologetics, but it seems that a <laughs> lot has takedown. Yeah, she, she does. Um, maybe that's not what she's trying to do, but, uh, Oh, it seems like a lot of people need to justify every little daily decision that they make through scripture. And so like one of the things that I keep bumping up against is affirming theology is saying, it's not enough to say that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality or different expressions of gender, but, um, it, there's no, there's no place where it affirms it. Hmm. So people get really thrown off by that word affirm. They're like, show me, show me, show me, show me. Um, what, 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 what do you have to say <laughs> to that type of <laughs> response? Well, um, first of all, I don't normally, uh, engage in devil's advocate. Okay. okay uh, that's good. I, that's good. <laughs> I don't even like that phrase. I there's gotta be a better uh, phrase. <laughs> A somewhat unethical position, and you can yeah. think about why that would yeah, be, right? Yeah, like yeah. Lucifer whispering and the accuser right. Job. Anyway, um, I agree. I, the tradition is actually different than that, right? As there, but yeah. anyway, um, <laughs> but but the the actual thing to say, I think I would say a few different things. One is that um, no matter how much we think we might be ordering our lives according to some set of Christian principles, the only way we can tell ourselves that sort of story is by only paying attention to some of the decisions we make. Hmm. It just isn't the case for any of us in all kinds of ways that we can order our lives in a full and complete way for many different reasons yeah. toward what we think of as good and right. It doesn't mean we don't want to. It doesn't mean that we you know, necessarily have to sort of think of ourselves as like, oh, I'm a failure. Why can't I do this? You know, et cetera. It just means that um, one of the consequences of the sort of openness and flexibility that's part of being human is that we are also scattered and self-contradictory creatures. Mm -hmm. This is, again, a very fundamental Christian insight, is that we're sort of divided against ourselves in all kinds of ways. This doesn't have to be bad. It can mean just that we can be very interested in many different things, that we can take up a project at one point in our lives and maybe take up a very different project at another point in our lives, or that we can sometimes find ourselves with contradictory desires that we can't really reconcile. All of that's just part of being human. It can also mean, though, that um, we sort of can set up a dream of an illusory wholeness for ourselves, a dream of, you know, that sort of that day when you caught up on everything, yeah. you finally got your room exactly the way you want it, you have exactly the right pair of pants, 
You've like checked <laughs> off that last thing on your to-do list that's right before you do the other thing, right? And yeah. like, and and that's the point when you're finally able to really devote your energy to like Whatever this thing is. that is like the real thing for you. That's always going to be a fantasy for all of us, right? And, 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 and those fantasies are powerful, sometimes for the good, sometimes they can help us to do some sorting and some arranging to try and like redirect our energy if yeah. we recognize that our life is our time, right? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. is something to really think about the consequences mm -hmm. of lockdown uh, for what that means, right? If mm -hmm. we recognize that our life just is our time, it is whatever now is for a sequence of nows that eventually ends, mm -hmm. you know, it can, thinking about these sorts of projects can help us to sort of make decisions about how we're gonna spend this That's now. Right right now, right? Because if you accept that you'll never catch up, you'll never get to that point, then maybe the big project can be done now when it doesn't always have to be sort of pushed off and, and so on. And I'm saying this to myself right now uh, because the, the to-do list that's lying sort of in front of me here on the desk, yeah. I, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to catch up, I promise. Like, I just need another week or two, like and I swear. Then, right? it's, you know. <laughs> then you'll be complete and whole. <laughs> so, so, so even if you say the sort of scripture never explicitly affirms you can equally well say, right, like scripture doesn't explicitly uh, condemn what we currently think of as um, sort of different kinds of uh, sexuality and gender identity. Again, because these concepts don't exist in the mm -hmm. time yeah. that scripture is mm -hmm. written. This is a very popular argument, which is accurate to a significant extent. At the same time, there is absolutely clear textual warrant that there are texts in the Bible that condemn a man lying with a man as 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 if with a woman there's no ambiguity around that mm -hmm. yeah. there's no real argument to be had about what's being talked about there so the question is what does that mean like what's the significance of a statement like that is it something that needs to be held to now again another very popular christian strategy is to say and look what's in the verses right around it right mm -hmm. like look what's in the verses right around it like these yeah. other things are condemned and you don't worry about those things at all so how come you think that this one has a particular validity and then it goes through a whole sequence of uh right like sort of uh but the thing is like if you grow up in a literal um in a church that reads the bible literally like i did you might also start to wonder what reading literally means. Mm. Because when I was like mm. eight or nine, like I had my little Bible all, all marked up. It was proving that the seventh day Sabbath is the real Sabbath mm. and that the Sabbath has been changed to Sunday by uh, the abomination that causes desolation in Daniel. I can walk you through this in a lot more detail <laughs> if you want. And, <laughs> you know, I, I would sort of go out and I would look for like, um, you know, uh, Church, Church of Latter-day Saints uh, missionaries or Jehovah's Witnesses so that we could like have our little proof texting Bibles thrown out, yes. right? Yeah. But it wasn't only that like i i i uh lived in a church that that read the bible literally and yet people disagreed all the time hmm. like all the time about what the bible actually means and says and so on and what seemed to me like very clear straightforward readings of the relationships between different texts in scripture that would for instance prove that the 1260 years that are prophesied in uh, Daniel and Revelation come to an end in 1798 when the pope is taken prisoner by Napoleon anyway i can i can draw you the little i can draw you the little graphs right and i can show you the little like time posts da, 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 da. Um, they didn't somehow seem to other people to necessarily prove the exact same things that i so clearly recognized as the literal meaning of those texts. Mm -hmm. And so I, I eventually had to accept that interpretation is always part of what we're doing in relation to the Bible. And then somebody will say, oh, that's just relativism, right? But that's because 
for people who believe um, certain kinds of things about the Bible, you already have strategies built in that means that what looks like evidence to one person won't count as evidence to another person. And that's because those hermeneutical strategies, hermeneutics about interpretation, right? Those strategies of interpretation are sort of structured into the very thing itself. And there are at least a few different places that we can see that around this conversation. One is around the idea of biblical authority mm-hmm. and the way that that plays out, which plays out on territory that maybe isn't itself very biblical. Another is around like the status that sexuality and to some extent gender identity are given in Christianity in ways that it seems very clear that the sort of central lines of Christianity, Jesus, even Paul, like the idea that to them, like, you know, like a question like this would be what Christianity is about. It's so foreign as to be completely unrecognizable. If you yeah, read anything yeah. that either of them says, it's just this, there's no way you can get there from here, it seems to me. Um, but of course you can, because people do, right? <laughs> and so then that third thing is like, what's going on there, right? Like, right. how do we understand what it means to be shaped and reshaped? So it's one of the reasons why I argue in the book that people don't change their mind on this issue for reasons, they change their mind on this issue and then they find reasons. Ooh. That's how it works. Yeah, and the reason the mind changes is often love, right? It's often a beloved person or yourself. It's often um, just different kinds of experience where you start to see that the thing that you're insistently being told just doesn't match yeah. the reality of what you're experiencing. And after a certain point, in a way, you can't help it. And then people look for that apologetic argument, right? That's right. when they buy the Matthew Bynes right. book or whatever yeah, yeah. the case may be. And they're like, oh, there's got to be a way to make the evangelical case for this. And like, sure, there is. It's not a very interesting case to make, but you, you do you. Like, I, you know, I'm anti-moralizing. And so yeah. it, you, you, see how that, you see how that works, right? Yeah, and, totally. and, and then you find suddenly different arguments convincing than you did before. Mm. But you changed. The arguments didn't. Yeah. I mean, I can relate so much in the sense that it was like, once I kind of knew and accepted myself, it was like, I don't, I don't care about what this scripture is saying. Like, I know my truth. I know my experience. And I know that like my experience of God within me, it's not like, it's just, it, I, I stopped altogether with apologetics. I was like, I don't care at all. But it's interesting because some people pick it back up or some people, it matters so dearly that they have the reasons as well. Well, and you can ask yourself, like, what's the story that has to be told as the Christian story mm-hmm. for this to be true in the way that it's taken to be, right? In other words, you have to ask yourself, are you willing to stake everything on the idea that a particular understanding of binary gender identity and normative heterosexuality, to use sort of fancier words, that is that, you know, man, woman, all that stuff, yeah that that is the central message that the creator of the universe has for you. Right. Like, if you think that I'm fine with you doing your, your thing and calling that Christianity, it's not like, it's just not, it's just not, Yeah. but, but I, you know, like this is the decision that that many people are making. Is that the decision you want to make? You are allowed to live your life in a Mm -hmm. way that I think is deeply misguided and incredibly sad. (laughs) that's nice just to hear you say it that way it's very powerful um okay so putting apologetics to the side you you make the decision to to approach this conversation with uh through the lens of queer theory so how would you describe what that entails 
<laughs> that's like I don't know. That's I'm not a I'm not a very good question asker. <laughs> Just trying to prompt you, I guess. <laughs> or why did you try? Why did you choose to to approach it that way? I guess maybe. Well, there are there are a few different answers to that. One of them is that there are certain strands in queer theory that I think have interesting resonances with some of the strands in Christianity that, and some of the questions in Christianity that have very much shaped me as a mm. as a person and as a as a scholar. I guess it's like, oh, I'm a grown up. I'm a scholar. I'm an actual professor of theology. So yeah, I must mm-hmm. be right. Like, <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, and 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 these are questions about like this question of transformation, right? Like yeah. change. Like what are I'm very interested in limit experiences. I'm interested in like how far, um, you know, what happens when people try to live their lives differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I was talking a little bit about growing up Seventh Day Adventist in Norway, and you know, there are a couple of characteristic lifestyle things for Adventists that were incredibly major part of my uh, of my um, childhood and youth. You know, like keeping Seventh Day. Sabbath, right? So sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, Um, certain kinds of uh, dietary practices that are characteristic of Adventists. Adventists are supposed to ideally be vegetarian, to abstain from uh, coffee and tea, uh, caffeine, basically, and, you know, a few other things like that. And I noticed, I mean, these aren't these aren't the biggest differences in the world, right? But in Norway, you still have a very strong labor movement that means that uh, many uh, shops aren't open on Sunday. Mm. And so when we would be driving home from church on Saturday, on Sabbath, you know, my dad would sort of point to the very, very busy shopping streets because, you know, that's the day that people can, people can, can go, go shopping in, in downtown Oslo, right? And he would talk about what we were doing as a sort of resistance practice to capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and, and he would sort of tell me that like, this is part of what it takes to live differently. Mm. Well, what I noticed was how much work that was, Yeah. right? Like how fundamentally you had to order your life to make different decisions easier to not participate in this shopping extravaganza to, um, you know, did, did you take the newspaper in? It's one of the examples I often remember because my family used to fight over the newspaper. We all loved it. But you wouldn't bring the newspaper in until mm. Sabbath was over, wow. right? Because you're sort of bringing in the temptation, right? So you're carrying the newspaper from your mailbox into the house, like so small a decision. And this for like such a minor change in how you live your life, yeah. right? Like just keeping this one 24-hour period away from a certain kind of quote-unquote worldly cares, so I'm very interested in how much work it takes to make human life different hmm. and how you sort of build the social and communal structures, even that oh so hated word institutional structures mm. that can support living differently, right? Because I went to schools that were run by Adventists, I spent time with other Adventist families, you know, et cetera. Like you create a little bit of a of a of a world going along, yeah, to make this possible. Well, you know who else does that to some extent is queers. Right. And even for Christians in some cases, and you sort of start noticing um, if, if you know what to look for, you start noticing how much work it takes for things to be different. Mm-hmm. And then also how um, and this is one of the reasons why queer theory is interested in feelings like shame, not as a feeling that you need to get rid of but as a feeling that is part of being human and being torn in certain ways 
being conflicted. And I was like, oh, queer theory and Christian theology, especially the kinds that I'm interested in, are looking at some very similar questions using completely different vocabularies Mm. and completely different reference points. And I thought in many ways, uh, queer theory had a more sophisticated vocabulary for some of this um, than, than Christianity did, because a lot of Christianity on these questions tended towards a certain kind of moralizing. And queer theory was very interested in, in my experience, in people as they are, mm-hmm. um, rather than in some idea of sort of magically transformed people that would just be different. Um, instead, sort of starting very much with everydayness, with everyday experiences of feeling shame, of feeling disappointment in yourself, of failing to be um, not just a good heterosexual, maybe, but even a good queer in the way that you think queers ought to be and so on. And so I I turned to queer theory because I thought there was a a very useful tool there. And I thought that some of the um, answers that it offered to some questions might help Christians think through uh, some of their own questions in a different way. That's the less technical version of the answer, because the more technical version is written in queer theory language and (laughs) speak very well. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, right? It's more academic. Um, Going off of that, in your book, you talk a bit about kind of the idea of the question of queer and then the limitations of queer as a label. And I wonder if you could speak a bit about that as well. Yeah. um, I mean, there's, there's tons to say about the limitations of queer as a label, right? Like including labels are, are both sort of helpful and, um, inadequate in all kinds of ways. This one has all kinds of baggage and history, um, there are no baggage-free uh, questions and, and, and labels um, that are available to us. But give me a little more to go on, because I feel like you have a direction in this question. And it's possibly just that I'm not <laughs> catching it. No, I guess I guess for, for especially thinking of this audience of thinking of queer folks listening to this, often queer youth listening to this, I think there's like a large... Em, like embracing of the word queer and an embracing of this label and yet I know I personally have found myself embracing the label and then yet finding it limiting finding it in a way playing to this idea of I have to say I'm queer because I'm not straight and like I have right, to have right. this word for what it is and then yeah also like you talk a bit about this in your book of this idea of queerness being both the beautiful thing of it is that it's like very open and yet that's also a hard aspect of it is that it's like could be anything and could be nothing at the same time. Um, Right. So I wonder if you could kind of explain a bit more about that idea of like the limitations. Right. Right. No, that's, that's, that's helpful. And yeah, I mean, you're, you're summarizing beautifully, um, not just around your own experience, but about some of the work I wanted that discussion to do in the book. So I, you know, I, I use the term queer in my teaching. I use it in my writing. I I think it's an important term right now in certain ways. Mm -hmm. But because one of the things I'm interested in is sort of history of conflicts in LGBTQ movements, I also recognize like how quickly the territory shifts, right? Mm -hmm. There's this example that I, I haven't figured out 
how exactly to do something about it. But when I wrote that little queer theology book, using trans with an asterisk after it was kind of considered like, this is how we're indicating that like trans doesn't have to be a narrowing term. And it can mean many, there are many different ways of being trans. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're transgender, that you're transsexual, that you're like, there's, there's just a lot of flexibility in this term. And then, you know, I published the book and like immediately afterwards, the asterisk just disappears and it becomes like the thing that you don't do. Right. And so the thing that I'm intending it to indicate Mm. in the book, it doesn't necessarily indicate anymore. Right. Mm. Because usage just shifted very, very quickly on that question. And, you know, this is true, too, with like people who are like, oh, queer is a colonial term because it writes out like particular indigenous uh, alternative sexual and gender practices or queer is a whitening term Mm -hmm. or uh, queer is a sort of. you know, they'll say like universalizing or falsely homogeneous. It sort of imports a kind of sameness where there's actually difference. Yeah. I, I know people who are very strongly identified as lesbians or as faggots who would never use the term queer for themselves and right. who strongly resist that term being imposed on them. And for for myself, like I, I respect the struggles that lie behind um, the sort of intensity of feelings that people have around these terms. It's also the case that people have very, very different experiences of these terms. Um, I I heard an older gay couple talk once about how uh, the term queer had come along and it had felt to them like a rejection of the gay identity that they had Mm. fought so hard to be able to create for themselves. It felt like the the specificity of their sexuality was being taken from them when they were suddenly told that now you have to be queer. You don't get to be gay anymore in a certain sense because that became... Um, so I, I think it's interesting to think too about the political potential of reclaiming words that have, uh, and, you know, queer was once such a reclaimed word. It was a slur that was, that was taken back. So, you know, um, the United Methodist Church has this, uh, has this, uh, language, uh, has had this language in, in some of its writings at one point about, um, you know, how it's wrong to be a self-avowed practicing homosexual. And I've found it interesting to say, well, I'm a self-avowed practicing homosexual and I'm getting real good at it, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's interesting to sort of take that language and, and, right. and, and say like, yes, I am the thing that you think I am. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm willing to take that. I'm interested in what it means to be abject, to identify myself with what's in me. I maybe even despise sometimes. Now for me, homosexuality is not part of that. Like I think it's, I think if you're lucky enough to be queer, wow, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I understand that there are some poor, like, cis straight people, and I, I sympathize with their plight in life, right? Like, that must be so boring. Um, and it must be awful to have to sort of, and, and, and you know, I, I, I wish them all the best, right? Like, um, so for me personally, like, homosexuality is not part of, or, or, or queerness uh, in, in all its many different forms isn't part of what I sort of despise in, in right. my own experience. But there are things about myself that I hate. There are things about myself that I don't want anyone to see. It's very Mm. interesting to think about what those things are, who I'm trying to get away from, Mm. like who I want to dissociate myself from when I uh, condemn those things, when I hide them, when I don't want other people to see them. And this isn't about visibility. It's not about visibility of identity. It's about um, what shame makes possible for us. And what shame makes impossible for us. And queer is a word about that. Mm. That's one of its values. At least it was one of its values in the past. I think there will probably be other terms that take on that function uh, as we move forward. 
not uh, forward. See, that sounds like, oh, we're getting better we're at it. And I don't think we do. Yeah, exactly. Like in 2020, we are still like, have you ever met people? Like, <laughs> of course we're still, this is what we do. <laughs> yeah. I think that's interesting. It brings up for me because I identify as lesbian and that's like really important to me. I'm like, I don't, my sexuality, I don't want to claim queerness. I want to claim that I'm a lesbian because that to me was the dirty word growing up and this thing that was bad. But in terms of my gender identity, I'm like, queer all day every day that's the that's where queerness shows up for me and that word works there but not not in terms of my sexuality and mm. it's like having to kind of explain that and name like I'm queer but not in terms of but I'm a lesbian and like that's right. important to name and say that that's happening well it also just seems in terms of this idea idea of identifying like it's it's it seems like it's it's complicated. There's good and bad elements to it, and we're we're now always asking people how do they identify. And to a certain extent, I feel like that must be fairly liberating in certain contexts to be able to freely say, I identify as queer, I identify as gender non-binary. Um, but then it also seems slightly fixed. And then also when we were talking to Ashan, I had never heard anybody say this before, but he was saying I don't want to think of it as an identity, but more of a practice. Um, so that seemed a little bit more fluid and not so like I am claiming prescriptive. This, yeah. Prescriptive fixed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess we're just still riffing on uh, queer as a identifier <laughs> or the limitations. Well, and, you know, I the as a, yeah, the language that I borrow from Mark Jordan around that in the book is sexual scripts, mm-hmm. right? That we sort of right. feel like there are these sexual or identity scripts that we need to live out. And the process of discovering what scripts are going to be ours can be very important and can be very meaningful and very transformative. Um, for some, those scripts change across the life. Mm-hmm. And that's a good and exciting thing. Mm-hmm. And for others, they don't. And that's also a good and exciting yeah. thing um, to, to sort of put a kind of moral or ethical value on one of these over the other, instead of to meet people where they are, mm-hmm. to recognize that to be human is to be in time, that if you think there's any sort of God uh, involvement in making you or making the world, that the incompletion of time and change are part of what's built into the very you that you are. Well, it means that investing too strongly in like, I must be this thing or this thing must be fluid for everybody is to completely generalize what are very particular experiences and very different from person to person. And the language that makes sense to me in terms of self-discovery right now might not be the same language that I might be using at some later date. Um, That doesn't invalidate it. Like theology and queer theory and I think in general, any interesting question should be about everyday people and people as we encounter them, as we experience ourselves, as we um, live in a world that's marked in very fundamental ways by conflict. Mm. Dang. <laughs> so helpful. Um, okay. W- one of the other concepts that I really liked that was actually brand new for me uh, as both, both Mace and I have studied theology in various contexts and um, I, had, I had never heard of tea theology up until I read this book. And I thought that was just a very helpful label to put a lot of, I don't know, um, contours around language and certain types of conversations that I hear all the time. And now I have a word for what is going on when that happens. Uh, would you 
care to explain what T-theology is? <laughs> yeah, so T-theology is a word that comes from the, maybe to this still still until now, like most important, um, even though uh, she's controversial in certain ways, queer theologian Marcella Alsace-Reed, who writes about the relationship between uh, theology and actually she doesn't use this exact uh, term, but it's something very much like that, sexual scripts, Mm. the kinds of sexual scripts, the kinds of sexual storytelling that are built into the very structure of Christianity, but made in many ways invisible because they're written into this very technical very abstract, very kind of grand language of like big stories and huge storylines. She reads this because she's writing as an Argentinian theologian. She reads this in part in terms of colonial scripts, right? Like the sorts of scripts that you had to write to produce a colonized world. Um, And what it means is, right, that you have this, you have these, you have this Christianity, especially when it comes to uh, Jesus and the incarnation, you have this Christianity that's written around some very, clearly sexual scripts, some grand narratives around a God, the father who impregnates a young, poor virgin woman and magic, you know, all this sort of these very sort of um, very evidently uh, sexualized stories. And somehow you learn to tell them and retell them in such a way that that disappears completely. And to say that this is a sexual story seems in her language, completely indecent. Like, what do you mean? This is a story about what's holy, not a story about mm. what's indecent, mm. right? And so tea theology is her term for, in a way, learning how to speak so that you don't see what's clearly in front of you in certain mm. ways. Mm. And that goes that goes for all kinds of relationships. Um, but, but in theology, it has something to do with grand categories. It has something to do with getting very, very concerned about... Uh, you know, one of the theologians that I wrote my dissertation uh, on, a major Roman Catholic theologian of the 20th century, has an extended discussion in one of his books about how Mary's hymen moved aside to make sure that Jesus could move through it without perforating it when she gave birth to him. Hmm. Wow. This is very technical theology. Huh. It's also very clearly a sexual script, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, that one might be so obvious that maybe it doesn't even qualify as T-theology, right? But T-theology is how we learn to tell stories about what it means to be good. Mm-hmm. It's about how we learn to uh, present ourselves as respectable in mm-hmm. a world where race and class and social location and homelessness and uh, substance use are clear markers of your respectability. Mm-hmm. Capital T theology is a respectable theology. It's a theology that deserves to be taken seriously. You have to study hard to learn it, right? And she contrasts to that indecent True. theology, which is indecent theology isn't afraid of the body. It's not afraid of being close to those who seem unattractive mm-hmm. to me. In fact, it understands that holiness, uh, and this is one of my favorite lines from her, holy, holiness is always the holiness of the other. Mm-hmm. The always holiness that I encounter. So, mm. so T theology, if I'm understanding this correctly, is like kind of like big T theology, like this bigger prescriptive theology of like a certain way to be in the indecent theology or this you're offering like a counter to the T theology and saying, let's look at the in heavy quotes, indecent side of theology and see that that's there in a part of theology. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's part of it. Absolutely. And also that, um, you want to do theology. Sorry, I'm in a 
I don't know if you can hear that, but I'm mean, okay. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> very, very loud car just went down my Brooklyn <laughs> street a second ago. Uh, uh, in Eastern theology is also theology. And, and, you know, one of, one of Althaus Reed's talents as a writer is that she has this capacity to tell these very evocative, these very vivid little stories. And then the stories come to stand in for mm. what she's talking about. Mm. So in one of her books, she writes about uh, the people who go to gay bars with rosaries in their pocket, mm. right? So that's indecent theology. Mm. That makes sense. Um, Lynn, I'm wondering, like people, all three of us in our own way work, work with young people. And you said you've been teaching this queer theology curriculum for about 10 years, you said, or more? Uh, I've been teaching for 11 years. I've been teaching this class for eight off and on. So, I I mean, I guess what has that experience been like for you in terms of the students you've encountered and the conversations you've had? I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've had every type of conversation imaginable, The students are wonderful. I mean, the students are the joy of my existence, right? (laughs) The students are just absolutely stellar, fascinating people with projects and interests. (laughs) And I I feel incredibly lucky to be in conversation with them. Um, What many of them come in wanting from this class isn't what I give. Mm -hmm. I, I do acknowledge that because, again, it's there's often a desire for a certain kind of apologetics and a kind of uh, thinking about Christianity and sexuality that knows the answers in advance. Yeah. And I'm not interested in thinking about either Christianity or sexuality and certainly not both of them together in a way that knows all the answers in mm. advance. I'm very interested. And, you know, this is, it's, it's a little bit, um, I don't know what exactly it says about me. Right. But like, as a scholar, I'm incredibly curious to understand things. And one of the most one of the things I'm most curious to understand is everything I can't understand. And in particular, the parts <laughs> yeah. of it that escape my understanding and the fact that they escape my understanding. And there's a, there's a real sort of desire and passion there precisely in that my desire isn't going to make them sort of come inside my control. They will, yeah, they will stay away. Be. Like there will still be mystery, right? There yeah. will still be like that. That's fascinating to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating both in terms of thinking about sexuality and, uh, and Christianity and so I try to, I, I try, I'm sure I fail in, in ways I don't know, um, but I try to model that kind of thinking and that kind of relating to these questions. And I try to use sources and resources that help students to do that too, that avoid a sort of fixed path. I have now learned the correct way to respond to this sort of question. I have now like reeled off what everybody in my social environment thinks are the correct things to think about gender and sexuality or about Christianity. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm very interested in in what we do when we don't do that. Yeah. Right. Mm. Like, what else could we do with Christianity and sexuality if we allowed them to be questions for us, mm. rather than places where mm. we are developing our own subtle dancers? Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that too. I think that's everything, man. Yeah, I think. I mean, we mentioned in the beginning is that Scott and I we work with a lot of youth, a lot of queer youth specifically, and I think that that is an interesting role we are playing where our youth are looking to come for community belonging, some, some sense of stability. And yet also we're wanting to allow them to think beyond a specific way they have to be, think beyond a specific way God has to be, think beyond a specific way faith has to be. It can look so many different ways. And while holding the space of being stable and providing comfort, we also want to provide disruption. So I feel like mm, we're, we're walking yeah. this narrow path of doing both of those things, especially because it's more high school age people. So they're still figuring out 
who the heck they even are. I mean, college age and grad students are also doing the same. We're always figuring out who we are. Um, I actually think that's a lifelong journey. But no, I mean, I really, I love that. And um, I think of my, the most profound experiences I had in my undergrad. And it was always those professors who didn't give the answers and didn't allow for something to be fixed, but challenged me to find, challenged me to think more expansively and to embrace not knowing and embrace the journey of not knowing and that you can know a lot and increase in your knowledge and wisdom. And then while that's happening, know less and it become more mysterious and more uncertain as you know more. <laughs> so it's a. I, I just think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that I, I, you know, I have a lot of students who are trying to figure out what they want to do. Do they want to be pastors? Do they want to work yeah. in a sort of social services nonprofit context? Do they want to go on for more grad school? Uh, I teach a lot of master's students. And, you know, one of the things I say to the ones who want to go on for grad school is that you have to learn how to find it exciting that people around you know more than you do. Mm-hmm. Because to choose to be an academic, to choose to be in a university is to mean that somebody around you will always know more than you do, especially about the things that you yourself know the most about. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But also it'll mean and you notice the things that others know that you don't. You don't notice the things that you yourself know. Mm that they might not know because everybody knows that, right? Like it's just, it's just something, you know, yeah. right. And so, and, and you know, it can, it can, it, it can also be a little destabilizing when you're a student to sort of hear people say things and you don't hear yourself talk in the same way. And, you know, so you, you notice what's novel about what they're saying, but you don't know what's novel in your own. I mean, our mm. brains just kind of work this way, but in any case, right. Like you're talking about stability and disruption. You know, one of the things that we can do is, is pay attention to each other. Right. And, and to really pay attention to each other, to, to listen, to, um, and, and in that listening also to allow our own experiences, not to interpret the experiences of others, but to be present to who it is that is doing the listening or mm. as who you mm. are doing the listening, right? Yeah. Because you yourself are also a person who has asked questions and who has changed and your story and your narrative and your trajectory aren't going to be the same as the, those of the ones you are listening to, but you are also reciprocally exchanging, um, you know, a certain kind of uh, encounter and becoming to get a little romantic yeah. for the moment. Mm. Um, it's still true, even though it's a little cheesy. Mm. Well, that's what we're trying to tell the kids that we're working with. I call them kids. I, I always mean students, young people, adolescents, teens. What do you want to be called? Um, uh, that it, we're trying to create a space of mutual learning, that we're not doing this top-down thing where we're, we've got God figured out and we're teaching them about God, but uh, we're all wondering together. And we have some things that we've learned along the way, but they definitely have something to teach us. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. It, it helps us create an environment or a posture where we're uh, a lot more curious about God and, and there's not an end, end, end point in sight in terms of coming upon the correct theological answers Or it's like what you even said earlier, like arriving someday when our projects are going to be finished and our theology is all ironed out and, you know, it's very boring. Yeah, it does sound boring. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I bet your students love that. And, you know, there's, there's, Jesus tells some really scary stories sometimes, right? And one of his scary stories is the sort of, it's better to be thrown into the river with a millstone stone around your neck than to lead one of these little ones astray. Mm. And I think for those of us who do teach that, 
that's a text that I think about a good mm-hmm. bit, right? Because I think about the heaviness of that responsibility of, of especially um, you're, you're not, I think, inside a system where you have a sort of job responsibility to evaluate others. Right. I, I have that as part of my job responsibility, mm. right? I, I have to give grades, in other words, right. and there's a certain kind of... Um, there's a lot of values built into that that I might not share in a variety yeah. of ways. And yet that is, you know, and, and so, you know, what does it mean to be present, especially when what you're teaching, as in my case, is about some of the most personal and deepest kinds of aspects of who yeah. students are, of the questions. You know, I one of the things that I think is so exciting for them and for me is that you you get to do as your sort of day-to-day work is is to is to think and have conversations around some of the most interesting questions in the world, right? Like it's a it's an enormous privilege in the better sense of that term than the than the social justice sense, which isn't very helpful. And to use that privilege, right, to sort of to go all in and really have the conversations, ask the questions, and to hold what you hold passionately clearly and in a non-punitive way Mm. right that's that's a hard responsibility Mm. but it's a really important one um for everybody i think who participates uh, on all sides in these exchanges yeah i I guess i have two questions to wind down two winding down questions okay let us know (laughs) if you have to go too because we're we're getting let's let's do the winding down (laughs) i think they're pretty simple i mean um (laughs) i think they are well one is what's next for you because i know you've been doing some writing and i think you're working on a book I am working on a book uh it's a weird book uh but i am working (laughs) on a book uh it's yeah um i'm working on a book called the impossible other Theology, Queer Studies, and the Politics of Human Redemption. Cool. And it's a book in part about um, the desire to be good and the danger of the desire to be good. It's also about uh, some that. questions around like the strategies that scholars use to deal with some of the questions that concern us mm. um, and where those strategies can lead us wrong uh, around certain kinds of questions. Mm. So. That's yeah, gonna be. I think um, that sounds so good. <laughs> it does. It sounds like something I need. <laughs> strong. The desire to be good is strong. I, I. I mean, I. I've made this joke many times. Like all theologians, correct for our own worst impulses. So you can imagine what mine are. Right. There you go. There you go. I'm trying to correct for the desire to be good. Exactly. Why might that be? I wonder what my problem could be in this scenario. Right. Like. <laughs> That's going to be a takeaway. I mean, we always come away with some major takeaways that we're probably going to be talking about for like the next few months. <laughs> and that that whole desire to be good thing being wrapped up in original sin and stuff like that is is really good. That's that's rich uh, stuff to think about. OK, my, my other question is, if you if we're, if if you have like a, a questioning, scared student in mind who's not who's in non affirming spaces, who's potentially listening to this or just anybody for that matter, it doesn't have to be a teen, but like in, anybody who's looking to this, uh, to feel a sense of encouragement maybe, or hope, or, um, I, I, I know it's a big thing to lay on your shoulders, but like, what, what's your, what's a message that you might have for someone like that? Well, anyone who says to somebody that their sexuality or gender identity is something about them that should be worthy of condemnation just because of the particular form that it takes is not telling the truth. They might not know that they're not telling the truth. 
Um, and there might be much to say about what they're hoping to protect you from or what they're hoping for you that is motivating, telling you something that fundamentally isn't true. But it's not true, right? There's nothing wrong with any particular gender or sexual identity um, in, in, uh, in, in, most, in most ways. And there's nothing wrong in having desires, even desires that you might not want to have. None of that is inside your control, mm. and that's okay. What you can choose to do something about is how you enact your desires, is how you love who you love, how you become who um, at this at this point uh, is right for you to be. And there's no outside answer to that. It's very sad that people get lied to about this, right? It's incredibly sad that there are people who think they love you who tell you something that isn't true in this regard. I think that's a horrendous tragedy, and it's one of the reasons, it's one of the things I'm most working against in my work is, is that we get better at recognizing when we're saying things that aren't true and, mm. and the consequences of learning to speak in untruthful ways, not only for our relationships to God, but for our relationships to each other, for our relationships to the world that we live in. We're, as we're seeing in our current uh, political, social, economic, and health situations, telling the truth might be the most difficult thing there is to do. Yeah. And, and so we might not want to blame either a lot of the people who say these things mm. because they, they don't know that what they're saying isn't true. In fact, there might be a lot of fear and a lot of, um, there's a lot going on in, in, in thinking that to love someone is to tell them that there's something wrong with them. Mm. But that's not true. It's so good. I think that's just so productive, just in counteracting us parents or teachers or pastors who are framing everything in the sense in the sense of they have the truth. Um, and so, yeah, to be able to hear those words, I think, is very helpful. Lynn, this has been such a good conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Honestly, <laughs> you're so easy me. to talk to. It's fun. Um, I hope we can do it again sometime, uh, but I know you're also super busy, but um, I'm, I'm going to turn off the microphones and then we'll say another ex different goodbye. Okay. Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> Thank you.